Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick, and greetings to all of you out there. And don't forget to smash that follow button and share the show with your friends. And before we get started this week, I want to give a shout out to a listener named Gareth who wrote me concerning a story I told about W.O. Bentley in last week's episode. And Gareth says, I'm really enjoying your podcast, and I have two tiny corrections on your Bentley tangent, which is an obsession of mine. Bentley had agreed to a deal to sell the company to Napier, which was another manufacturer in the late 20s, early 30s. But since Bentley was in receivership, there was a court involved, and someone objected. There was a short bidding war, and then the judge ordered both parties to submit sealed bids. Rolls-Royce won, but not by much. You are correct that Rolls-Royce wanted the 8-liter engine, but not for their use. It was a better engine than the Phantoms, and they wanted to remove the competition. Basically, the first thing they did on acquiring Bentley was to break the molds and destroy the patterns so that no more could be produced. Keep the podcast coming. I look forward to it every week. Well, Gareth, of course, you're 100% correct. I mangled that story a little bit in the course of the conversation, which was really just a failure of my memory in the moment, but I'm glad you wrote in because I'm sure you're not the only one who caught that. So I stand corrected and I'm glad you're enjoying the show. Thanks for writing. And by the way, if you have questions, comments, corrections, just go to horsepowerheritage.com, hit that contact button, and that'll take you where you need to go. All right, well, we're going to kind of get to it this week. Today's episode was inspired by another listener named Sean who forwarded me an interesting article about the Gulf racing colors. We all know the familiar powder blue and orange, right? Well, it turns out that one reason the combination is so captivating is that these are equal luminant colors, meaning they have the same brightness. And that creates a conflict with your visual perception so that at the dividing line between the colors, they appear to vibrate and dance around slightly. And it's especially noticeable with highly saturated colors like these. Now, this visual trick can be jarring most of the time, but in the case of the Gulf Racing livery, it kind of produces a subconscious tension that we enjoy. So, interesting little factoid. Now, officially, the colors are zenith blue and tangerine. But beyond the optic nerve and the color theory, today I'm going to tell you the story of how that famous livery came to be and the cars and the people that made it famous. And that's coming up right after this. This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. Maybe you can't afford that Shelby 289 Cobra or that Porsche 356 Speedster, but having a scale model on the shelf is easy with Model Citizen Diecast. They stock collector-grade scale models in 143rd scale, 118th scale, and even the massive 18th scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. And if you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout, they'll give you 10% off your order. Limitations apply. Just visit ModelCitizenDieCast.com and check out their great selection. From race cars to classic cars and everything in between. Model Citizen Diecast. Because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now the glory years of golf racing, right here on Horsepower Heritage. Like I said, we all know those distinctive colors, right? Well, the key figure behind those glory years was an Englishman named John Wire. His career in auto racing began in 1950, when at the age of 40, he was hired by David Brown to manage Aston Martin's factory racing program. And that culminated in their first win at Le Mans in 1959, with Carroll Shelby and Roy Salvadori behind the wheel of a DBR1. Fast forward to 1963. 
Ford Motor Company tried to buy Ferrari, but they got rebuffed by Enzo Ferrari himself. So they went looking for a car builder in England to help achieve Henry Ford II's ambition of beating Ferrari at Le Mans. The logical choice was a guy named Eric Broadley, the founder of Lola Cars. He just completed the Mark VI, a mid-engine lightweight GT car powered by the Ford 260 V8 small block in front of a Colati transaxle, which was Italian-made. And incidentally, it was originally commissioned by Colin Chapman from Lotus. Now, simultaneously, John Wire was lured away from Aston Martin, and Ford established a subsidiary called Ford Advanced Vehicles, which was co-located with Lola in Slough, just west of London. And it was there that Wire became part of the team that developed the Lola Mark VI architecture into the Ford GT, which was soon to be called the GT40, a reference to it being just 40 inches tall, the minimum allowed by FIA rules. Power came from the 289 V8, but the transaxle remained the same Colada unit. In the spring of 1964, the GT40 had its maiden race at the Nürburgring, but as the season progressed, there were mechanical problems, and they didn't finish a single race. And the cars were also lifting at speed. With the program failing to yield the immediate victories Ford expected, they reorganized the whole thing and created a Le Mans committee to coordinate multiple development projects. Holman and Moody of Charlotte, North Carolina, was brought on board. They'd been preparing Fords in NASCAR since 1957, and now their job was to shoehorn the 427 Big Block V8 into the GT40 chassis. A company called Carcraft in Dearborn was also hired, and they were supposed to design and build a sturdier transaxle to replace the Colada unit, which again was designed for use with a small block Ford, but wasn't going to hold up, bolted to the 427. At the same time, Carroll Shelby essentially replaced John Wire in managing the racing program, and the cars were shipped to Los Angeles. The new arrangement with Wire was for him to assume responsibility of building all the road-going GT40s and providing parts and service. So a new partnership was established with his friend John Wilment, a successful Ford dealer whose own race team had been tearing it up in Cortinas and the big Ford Galaxy. They called the new company JW Automotive Engineering. Now, Wire's ouster from the racing program wasn't a reflection of his ability in any way, because whereas his approach had been very analytical and deliberate with meticulous analysis to achieve incremental changes, Carroll Shelby always got right down to brass tacks. Make it faster. Make it handle better. He'd give his team the bottom line, and they would work furiously through relentless testing and trial and error. It was a bit like spinning plates in the air, but it paid off with victories at Sebring and Daytona in 1966. And then it came time for the big daddy, Le Mans. Ford's strategy was to support parallel racing teams, which was not uncommon. Ferrari did it all the time. And 14 GT40s were entered. One car crashed during practice and 10 retired during the race. And the remaining three finished 1, 2, and 3, with Ford staging a photo finish. 29-year-old Bruce McLaren was behind the wheel of the winning car, and Ken Miles grudgingly took second place. Which is a story unto itself, and of course, if you've seen Ford vs. Ferrari, you know what I'm talking about. But back to John Wire. Ford had already reconsidered its presence in endurance racing. Having beaten Ferrari, they soon pulled factory involvement and the advanced vehicle operation was no more. 
However, at the Slough factory, Wire was still leading the construction of GT40s. One day, the phone rang, and on the other end of the transatlantic call was a voice inquiring about purchasing a car. The Texas drawl belonged to Grady Davis, the executive vice president of Gulf Oil Corporation. Davis had raced Corvettes in the SCCA, and with the backing of Chevrolet, he worked with Zora Arcus Duntoff and Pennsylvania Chevy dealer Don Yanko to make the Corvette a serious platform, even winning national championships until Chevy pulled out of factory sponsorship in 1963. But quickly, the two men became friends, and Davis threw the support of Gulf Oil behind John Wire and the GT40. Their first effort was modifying a GT40 by narrowing the cockpit for smoother airflow. They called this car the Mirage M1. Three were built, and they were the first machines to wear the now legendary Zenith Blue and Tangerine Gulf livery. Gulf's corporate colors were actually navy blue and orange, but... Davis had run those colors on his own GT40, and it just wasn't distinctive enough. There were plenty of other cars running dark blue paint schemes. At any rate, he specified the powder blue instead, which turned out to be a brilliant move. And he probably didn't know anything about equal luminance or color theory. The Mirage won at Spa in Belgium in 1967. Later, one of the cars was wrecked at the Nürburgring. And the surviving two were entered at Le Mans, but retired after mechanical trouble. The winner at Le Mans that year was a radically different factory-sponsored Ford GT40 Mark IV, driven by Dan Gurney and A.J. Foyt. The Mark IV had a new honeycomb chassis and very different coachwork, following some changes in Appendix J of the FIA rulebook that allowed for the evolution of existing types that had already been sanctioned for racing. So you've heard the term evoluzione. Well, this is where it comes from. And just a side note here, ironically, it was Enzo Ferrari himself that was responsible for these rule changes because he'd put pressure on the FIA governing board several years earlier to approve all new bodies on his own cars so that they could be more competitive. And that gave birth to the Ferrari 250 GTO as well as the Shelby Cobra Daytona Coupe designed by Pete Brock. Anyway, the GT40 Mark IV was wickedly fast down the Mulsanne Strait, 224 miles per hour. But in an effort to lower top speeds in the interest of safety, the day after the 1967 Le Mans race, the FIA made a rule change restricting engine displacement in the sports car class. The new limit was 3 liters, and that meant the big 427 cubic inch side oiler engine that had been so successful in the GT40s was now banned. But Wire's relationship with Golf was cemented. They were back at Le Mans in 68. And this time, Ford was out as a factory team. And so was Ferrari as a protest against the ban on large displacement. But the JW Golf car ran a 302 V8 in the hands of Pedro Rodriguez and Lucien Bianchi. And they won, with the second and third place Porsches far behind. JW did it again in June 1969, with drivers Jackie Oliver and Jackie Ix battling a Porsche 908 factory entry and winning by the slimmest margin in the race's history, only 120 meters. It was the fourth and final Le Mans victory for the aging GT40. 
But for John Wire, bigger things were just around the corner. Oliver and Ix had won the Sebring 12 three months earlier, and John Wire had earned Porsche's attention and their respect for his ability to take a tiny budget and squeeze so much out of what was basically an obsolete design. Before the race, Wire was offered the helm of a Porsche factory program for the next season. It would be in the 917, a car with a complex history and about which many books have been written. At least 11 different variants were built. And there's no way we're going to cover the whole history of this car. I wouldn't even try. But here's a brief sketch. It had a 4.5 liter air-cooled twin-spark flat 12 and an extremely light tubular space frame weighing just 93 pounds. And portions of the tube frame were actually used in the oiling system. However, Porsche was struggling with one thing, high-speed instability. Wire knew the car was very powerful and given further development, it could probably eclipse everything else in the prototype class. So he consulted Gulf Oil about Porsche's offer. And by August, it was a done deal. With British management and American sponsorship, Porsche entered the 1970 race season with the goal of winning Le Mans. But they were also supporting another team, Porsche Salzburg, in their 917s. As for the JW Golf team, testing began immediately and the greatest concern was the handling. Wire's chief engineer, John Horseman, noticed the long tail section of the car wasn't spattered with insects like the front end, and he concluded that the airflow was disturbed so that the tail wasn't providing the necessary downforce. So a shortened, temporary tail section was hastily fabricated and the handling improved right away. And that's how they created the 917K, or Kurtzek meaning short tail. The JW team's four drivers were Pedro Rodriguez of Mexico, Leo Kanunen of Finland, Joe Siffert, Switzerland, and Englishman Brian Redman. Daytona was this season opener. Ferrari had returned, but the golf team came out swinging. And even having to change a clutch in one of the cars during the race, they decisively finished first and second. They faltered a little bit at Sebring when some redesigned front hubs failed, but it was a temporary setback. Brands Hatch in England was next, with Pedro Rodriguez driving like a demon in the rain. In fact, he even said he was driving in the rain as if it were dry pavement. There was a crash on the first lap, and the course was under a yellow flag, but Rodriguez didn't see it through the sheets of relentless rain. So he kept driving as if he were under a green flag and passed a number of cars. He was black flagged going into the pits, and as a result, he dropped from second place to 12th. Undeterred, for the rest of the race, he hammered his way through the field and came back to win. It was a virtuoso performance of the first order. Then Rodriguez won again at Monza in a pitched battle with the Ferraris. After that, it was the Targa Florio, a 44-mile course on Sicilian roads with over 200 corners. In that particular race, they ran the open-top Porsche 908, which was a smaller car, much more manageable on the windy roads in Sicily. It was Joe Sifford in first place, with Leo Kanunen coming in second. Next, at Spa, they were number one and two on the grid. At the time, Spa was the fastest circuit in Europe, and the corners were nearly full speed and very hairy. The Ferrari 512s had gotten faster through the season, and it was an epic battle. Siffert and Redmond managed a win, but Rodriguez and Kanunen were out with gearbox trouble. 
And then came Le Mans, where they fielded three cars. But in John Wire's own words, it was a disaster, with two blown engines and a crash. In the end, it was one of the Salzburg Porsches that took first. But the big subplot of Le Mans in 1970 was Steve McQueen's production of a movie of the same name. It was a passion project he'd been planning for years. And a fourth golf car was supposed to have been driven by McQueen and Jackie Stewart to capture the real race for the film, but it was denied entry. Nevertheless, McQueen's production company shot footage from a 908 it had entered, and the number 20 golf car was a stand-in for his character's car. In the days after the race, they shot more sequences with McQueen driving and a bunch of cameras on the cars. Despite the disappointment of Le Mans, the JW team pressed on, finishing first and second at Watkins Glen, New York, and first at the Österreichring in Austria. With the combined points of the Gulf and Salzburg teams, Porsche had secured the 1970 World Championship. In 1971, John Wire's team won five of the 11 world sports car races, running a slightly larger 4.9-liter flat 12. Yet Le Mans again eluded them, with a blown gearbox in Derek Bell and Joe Siffert's car, and Rodriguez and Oliver out with a burst oil pipe. A Martini Racing 917 was the overall winner. Tragedy didn't escape the alumni of the JW Golf Porsche team. In July 1971, Pedro Rodriguez was killed when his Ferrari 512M lost a tire and hit the wall at the Norris Ring in Germany. He was only 31. And just months later, in the final race of the Formula One season at Brands Hatch, the suspension of Joe Siffert's BRM failed, and it was flung to the outside of a curve, bursting into flames, and he was unable to escape the inferno. He was just 35 years old. Rodriguez and Siffert were both masters of their craft, but it was an era of extreme danger, and they were gone far too soon. Despite not having much of a plot and quite a bit of turmoil during production, McQueen's film of Le Mans was released and has since become a classic. In fact, today it's really seen as more of a documentary than anything. And the backstory is more interesting than the plot anyway. In 1972, the FIA rules changed once again, and the prototype class was now restricted to that 3-liter limit, so the 917 was now banned. Now, parallel to this, there's a whole other story about golf sponsoring McLaren. But the postscript to the glory years of the blue and orange is that at Le Mans in 1975, with the gas crisis hanging like a vulture over the automotive world, fuel economy rules were put in place, and the race didn't count for the championship. But John Wire saw an opportunity to run a redesigned version of his Mirage chassis again. So they tweaked the fuel economy to squeeze the most out of the car, which was just over 7 miles a gallon, and Golf formulated a special fuel. Derek Bell and Jackie Ix drove the Mirage to victory. But the glory years for Golf will always be 1968 to 1971. Obviously, the cars were incredible, and their values have skyrocketed, and the mystique of Steve McQueen, the king of cool, has rubbed off big time. And if you've never seen one of those GT40s or 917s up close, don't miss that opportunity if it comes, because they are really incredible in real life. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. 
If you like what you've heard, tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the show another way, just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage and you can contribute as little as $2 and that's always appreciated. Don't forget to visit our sponsor, ModelCitizenDieCast.com. You can use the promo code HERITAGE there for 10% off your order. Limitations apply. I'm going to be in the studio the next couple days recording some pretty amazing interviews. I can't wait to share them with you. So let's all meet back here next week. And until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.